Guys, good to have you out tonight. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. And I have tried to work with the feedback that I got from the last, uh, like the background. Oh, okay, good. Uh, I've, I've tried to work with the feedback that you guys gave me, which I appreciated very much about the, uh, the verses being on the screen. So I am going to switch over to a different, slightly different setup here. You guys tell me if you can still see me okay, if you can hear me okay. Christina, when I pointed this out to her earlier, she said, you know, you're just, we're used to seeing more of you. I said, you need to see more of the Bible and less of me. So I like this screen. I think this will work. Uh, but if you guys, if there's anything that you can't see clearly or, I mean, it looks okay to me, but if, if there's something not coming clear through on your side, uh, please let me know in the comments. I have it right in front of me tonight, so I'm going to try to keep up with any questions or concerns that you have. All right, Matthew chapter 24, and uh, before we get into even the outline, let's bow our heads together. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank you for this privilege, this time to be together tonight, to have the Word of God opened, and I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds now, our ears. Lord, speak to us. Let the Holy Spirit be our guide. Father, you said specifically, Lord Jesus, you said it, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide us into, into the things that are going to come. He'll guide you into all things, those things that are to come. And the, that's what we're looking at tonight, Lord, this prophecy. So please, God, help us to wrap our minds around it and our hearts so that we can apply it practically even now. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let me see if I can work all this technology first off. There is your outline for this evening. Matthew chapter 24 breaks down into three parts. So you have stones everywhere, verses 1 and 2. And then part 2, signs of the end, verses 3 to 35. And then part 3, uh, which I don't think we'll get to tonight, uh, but we'll, we'll see as We'll do as best we can, but uh, there's a lot in this chapter. But part three, stay ready, uh, verses 36 to 51. All right, so let's dig right in to the text itself. Chapter 24 and verse 1, it says, And Jesus went out. Now remember, he's been in the temple teaching. Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Now when you read this in Luke's account, uh, and Mark, you get some supplementary information. You find out that it's specifically Andrew, Peter, James, and John that come and talk to him, and they are showing him how the temple is beautifully adorned and how gorgeous this structure was. I think I mentioned it last time, but Herod, when he rebuilt this temple, he did a magnificent job, made it really a, a, a sight to behold. This strikes me as strange, though, to be honest with you, because Jesus has just rebuked the Pharisees and scribes for the emphasis that they placed on the temple, specifically the gold of the temple. He has just said that the house would be left to them desolate, and then the disciples come and start talking about how beautiful the building is, and it specifically says that they were showing Jesus, bringing his attention to it, right, for to show him the buildings of the temple. That had to have been awkward for Jesus. I mean, here he is, God manifest in the flesh. He's the one who has manifested his presence in this temple for centuries. And now he has his disciples coming saying, let's give you a, a tour. Let's show you how great this building is. I don't know if they just weren't aware of the, of the 
the depth of what he had just said and how how powerful those words were that your house would be left into you desolate. Maybe they were making a plea to say, don't destroy the place. Maybe that's what they were trying to do. Whatever their intention was, right? They're showing him how great the building is. Jesus is going to tell them, you see all these things, it's going to come to nothing. Verse 2, Jesus said unto them, "Ye see, not, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Uh, that is exactly what came to pass. This was said in 33 AD. 37 years later, in 70 AD, under the rule of Titus, now he was a very high up general, he dispatched soldiers and other generals under him, other commanders under him. And one of them, all of Israel was destroyed um, under Titus's rule, but uh, specifically Jerusalem was ransacked, the temple burned to the ground and every stone taken down, just turned into rubble. Now, some people have tried to raise an issue with this prophecy to say that what Jesus said did not come to pass completely and they point to the Wailing Wall. Now, maybe you already are familiar with that structure. If not, you can find pictures all over the internet of it. But uh, it's also known as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. And Jews still go there to this day to pray. And they say, well, Jesus said every stone would be taken down, but yet that wall is still standing from the time, uh, from these biblical times. So evidently the prophecy failed. But bear in mind, there's a difference between that wailing wall, that Western wall and the temple itself. The temple was completely thrown down. This wall that was left standing was one of the retention walls that Herod had added on to the original uh, plan or structure of, of the temple. This was not part of God's design. This was something that Herod added, that wailing wall. So there's, there's nothing wrong with the prophecy. It came to pass exactly as Jesus said that it would. Just as far as a practical lesson goes, you can maybe think of it like this if you want to broaden the scope of this verse. We get very impressed with what man can put together, right? We get very impressed at these big buildings and fast cars and technology and, you know, we're blown away by the accomplishments of man. And let's, let's be honest, some of them are very impressive. I mean, I, I admit I enjoy looking at good architecture, good art. Uh, technology can be fun, as you well know, right? Amen. Exactly. It can be great. Um, but at the end of the day, all of this stuff is going to burn, right? Second Peter chapter 3 says all, everything is going to melt with a fervent heat. It's going to come to nothing. Heaven and earth is going to pass away. So rather than being so enamored with the things of the world that we can't get on serving, get on with serving the Lord, better to keep everything in focus. So every stone be thrown down, and it was. Now upon hearing this, the disciples have another question for him. Verse 3, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? I'm going to go into this so that you guys can keep up with that. All right. So there's several things going on in verse 3. First of all, let me just point this out quickly. They're at the Mount of Olives. So this is where we get the name for this chapter as the, the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. So if you hear that, 
that phrase that's what it's referring to is this portion of scripture, Matthew 24 and its parallel passages in Mark 13 and Luke 21. Now when they heard, the disciples heard about the temple being destroyed. Automatically in their minds, they put the temple being destroyed alongside the end of the world. Now, one thing we have to clarify, when, he, when they said, what shall be the sign of thy coming? I don't think that they understood the second coming the same way that we do now. Now, the reason I say that is because they didn't properly understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, right? Even after the resurrection, they still didn't understand how the things that Jesus had said about his demise fit into what was going on. So to think that they had figured out the second coming of Christ, this glorious return to conquer the enemy, I don't think they put all that together. Not the way that we now understand it, especially with the benefit of a full Bible, you know, all of the New Testament revealed, written down, and 2,000 years worth of studying it. So when they say the sign of thy coming, judging by what they knew, and how much they understood of what Jesus had said, I'm going to, and I'm guessing, but I, I believe it's an educated guess, to say that they're thinking that Jesus is, has left the temple, he's going out to the Mount of Olives, he has walked away from the house, and in due time, however long this will be, he is going to come back into the city and conquer the enemy. And there is going to be this massive fight and this destruction wherein the temple will be destroyed. So I'm guessing that that's what they have in mind when they ask this question. So the temple's going to be destroyed. Okay, so that must be the time that you're going to conquer everything. So when is that going to happen? And when they say, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now that word, world, the Greek word behind that is eon, which can also be understood as an age, right? The, like we use the, the term, the dispensational, or, or dispensations or times or ages, right? In that sense. So we talk about the age of grace or the church age, the kingdom age, the end of the age, the end of the world. You're saying the same thing when you say that. So they're not asking when is this planet going to be destroyed, but when is this time frame gonna be over and the new world under the leadership of the Messiah, when is that going to be established? So that's their question. Now, in their minds, the destruction of the temple, end of the world, and the second coming of Christ all goes together, as warped as their idea or understanding of that might have been. Jesus, on the other hand, he's fully aware that the destruction of the temple that took place in 70 AD and his second coming that follows three and a half years of horrible tribulation, which also is, is predated by other troubles that we're going to read about tonight. So Jesus is aware of the time frame, the prophetical timeline and how it works. He is going to answer the question, the sign of thy coming, the end of the world, rather than explain any misunderstandings they have about him coming without dying and stuff like that. He is going to launch into this wonderfully deep, prophetic chapter filled with information about uh, things that have not yet come to pass, but one day very soon will. Now, there's something we need to talk about before we launch into all the verses because there's, a, I believe, a mistake that's made in verse 3. It's a very popular one, especially amongst Reformed theology. 
and that is this chapter uh, is one of the key places for the preterist, the preterist position uh, to find some foundation. They, they turn to this and they say all of the prophetic material that we read about in this chapter, every, almost everything you read about in the book of Revelation was already fulfilled in or by 70 AD. So they say everything in the book of Revelation up until what we know as the millennial age, right? Everything from chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, 17, 18, 19, all of that happened before and then on 70 AD when, when Rome came in and destroyed Israel. So they take it that chapter 24, Matthew 24, is already finished. That it was prophetic when Jesus said it, but then by 70 AD it's done. And th that word preter, preterist, it comes from a Latin word, I believe, preter or pretor, which means past or done. It's already happened. So that's why we call them the preterists. Now there is, we're not going to launch, we're not going to get deep into this, but there is a partial preterism and a full preterism. Full preterism is, is nothing but heresy because they say that there's not even going to be a physical resurrection, but that the resurrection of the dead has already taken place. We are already into what the Bible refers to as an eternal age. They spiritualize everything, and that's obviously wrong. Partial preterism says that these prophecies have taken place by 70 AD, but there will still be a physical resurrection of the dead, and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So there's, they're, they're a lot closer to the truth on that. Now, one verse that they, the preterist really likes to turn to, they, they turn to verse 3, and they say, you see, the temple being destroyed and the second coming of Christ, those two things go together. So they say Christ's second coming his glory appeared in 70 AD, and then they make this church age, they call this the millennium. Now, we're not going to, this isn't a class on how to dismantle preterism, but that's the way they would approach it. They also like to use verse 34. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So they say, you see, the generation that heard Jesus say these things, they would not pass until everything in the chapter took place. Now, I must admit, if you only had verse 3 and verse 34, you have a pretty solid argument. I see the point. And that's why I'm not, I just don't dismiss it out of hand. I've, I've looked into the, the preterist approach to this, but there are, I believe, several problems to it. Let me show you some of those problems. So I hope you can see on the screen preterist problems. Let's move them quickly here. I, I hope I've clearly explain what preterism teaches. If you have any confusion about that, please pop a question in so that we can clear that up before we go on. But let's look quickly here. Verse number five, Jesus said, for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. Now, there were a couple of Jews that claimed to be the Messiah before 70 AD, but I don't think that would qualify as many. Jesus said, many shall come. So that didn't happen by 70 AD. Another thing in verse 7, he says, for nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines, pestilences, earthquakes, and diverse places. That didn't happen by 70 AD, uh, 70 AD. Not all of those things put together in different places. So that, that doesn't work with the preterist system. Uh, verse 14, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Well, that just didn't happen. 
right? The gospel did not, and we'll talk more about that verse later. There's a lot more that needs to be said about it, but it didn't reach all nations, um, especially if you're thinking of this globally. Now, if you want to localize it and say all nations that that uh, the apostles could have reached, um, well, when we get to verse 14, we'll talk about the other issues that go with that. But I just don't see verse 14 as having been fulfilled, not by 70 AD. Uh, verse 15, it says there, you shall see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place. That didn't happen. Now, the preterists will often say at this point, but the temple being destroyed was the abomination. of They made the temple desolate. But as you can see in Daniel, and, and other places in the Bible. That's not going to work. And then uh, verse 21. Jesus. Now this for me, verse 21, is the strongest evidence against the preterist position. Verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. So if you're a preterist, you have to believe that what happened in 70 A.D., was the worst, most violent war in the history of mankind. That is categorically not true. I mean, let's just mention one other time, Noah's flood. <laughs> How can you compare that to what happened in 70 AD? Now, the second coming, the true second coming, it is going to be worse than Noah's flood. And again, we'll talk more about that in another time. Uh, the next one in verse number 29 it says here, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. That didn't happen by, that didn't happen after 70 AD. Now you do have records. People said that the, the sun went dark and the moon, uh, there was a blood moon as they call it in 69 AD. There is a record of that. I'm not sure how reliable that record is, but they point to that and you say, you see, these things happened. And that is simply a fulfillment of what Jesus prophesied. But Jesus said in verse 29, after the tribulation of those days, not before it. If you put it in, if you have the sun and the moon going dark in 69, that's before the tribulation of those days. So that's, that's not going to work. And then verse 31, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I'll show you the verses later about the elect, but that's Israel. That's a verse about Israel being regathered to their land. That didn't happen in 70 AD. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite happened. The elect, which is the nation of Israel, they were dispersed, and that, that event in 70 AD became known as the diaspora, or the dispersion because of what happened. So I, as you can see, there are several things in the chapter that would indicate um, that the preterist position, although a couple of verses would seem to line up, the, the chapter by and large goes against that idea. All right, Zitle, full of preterism. Zitle, that is an excellent question and you are spot on with your thinking. So let me see if I can uh, drag this in here, where can I put it? Oh, there you go. You can, everybody can see that for a second, I think. Pastor, are full preterism in line, or is full preterism in line with the doctrine of Hymenaeus and Philetus? Yes. They taught that the resurrection was past already. Um, 
it is in line with it. I, I don't know if Hymenaeus Philetus are, are I, I don't think that they are going to fall perfectly in line with what preterism says about chapter 24, Matthew 24. But the idea of the resurrection is past because we have experienced a spiritual resurrection. There is no physical resurrection to come. That is in line, right? That is what those men were teaching. Uh, that is a false doctrine. And that is what full preterism ends up teaching. So yes, you've made a, a, a solid connection there. All right, Matthew 24 and verse number four. So Jesus Rather than give them an explanation about what's going to happen in 70 AD and then talk about what's going to happen 2,000 years later, he goes straight to, the, straight to the information they really need to know and that we need to know. What are the, what's the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Verse 4, Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. I find that incredibly instructive. The first thing he says is not watch out for this issue of politics or watch out for this pandemic or watch out for this earthquake. He'll talk about that later. The first thing he says is watch out for spiritual deception. Isn't that something? Watch out for people trying to lie to you. Verse five, for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. Christ, you Forgive me, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm trying some new things. So you guys give me some feedback. Tell me if this is okay, if you guys can see this okay. I'm going to give you a list of the people that have claimed to be the Messiah since the days of Jesus. So Jesus said, many shall come in my name, saying I am Christ. So I, now, as you can see, this is just Wikipedia. And guys, the list is going to be the same no matter which website you go to. This is... The list is the list. All right, so I'm going to scroll through the list. As you can see, we have three different groups, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and in all groups, they believe in a Messiah figure and they have different claimants. So if you're listening to this, maybe just by audio um, or SoundCloud or something like that, and you can't see what we're looking at, all you need to do is go on the internet um, and look up list of Messiah claimants, and you'll see the Wikipedia entry, and then you can see the full list. I, I know, guys, it bothers me when somebody scrolls real quickly, so please forgive me. I'm not trying to give you a headache, but there are too many names to read off. So I'm just going to make sure you get the point that when Jesus said many will claim to be the Messiah. He was not kidding. All right, so as you can see, Jewish claimants, uh, Jewish Messiah claimants. All right, so first off, Jesus of Nazareth. Now just watch the list. Simon, Moses, Ishak, David. Now I'm just gonna keep going. At, at a, forgive me, I'm not trying to waste your time um, by just skipping through it quickly. I just want you to get the idea I'm still going through the list. I'm scrolling this the whole time. We're still looking. We haven't even, we're just getting to the 1900s. <laughs> That's just the Jews that claim to be the Messiah. Now we're into the next part, the Christian Messiah claimants. This was in the early days of the church. Um, Simon Magus, Magus, Machus. Uh, you read about him in the Bible. If I understand correctly, that's, that's the one from... Uh, from Acts chapter 8. And 
Look at this list. The list just goes and goes and goes and goes and keeps going and keeps going and it's still going. Look at this. We're still going. Still going. We haven't hit the end yet. Still going. Still going. <laughs> this is a lot of people that have claimed to be the Messiah. I mean, this is wow. Even myself, I, this guy that's on the screen now, Jose Luis de Jesus, that's, he took on the name Jesus. Um, as you can see, he died in 2013, but he had, he had his followers getting tattoos of 666 on their forehead or in their hand. To, and he claimed to be the Antichrist, but he thought it was a good thing. And yeah, I, I won't explain his entire teaching, but it's... That was a crazy movement. It is still a crazy movement. Can you believe it? They're still going. Um, yeah, we're still going with this list. I'm still scrolling through it. Now, I'm going to stop here with the Muslim Messiah claim. It's, there's a, a long list. I, you can't see it on your screen, but I am. Maybe you can see just where my, my mouse is. I'm only halfway down the page. There is a lot of people claiming to be the Messiah. All right, so we're going to go back to the Bible. All right, so when Jesus said, many shall come in my name, he was not joking. Let me point something else out about this verse. For many shall come in my name. So it's one thing to claim I am the Messiah, right? That's one thing. I am the Christ. I am this conquering figure that is here to straighten out the world. Okay, that's a broad category. But then you narrow that down a little bit by the people that come in Jesus's name and claim to be doing the job of the Messiah. So it would be somewhat like saying, Jesus, he was the Messiah and he started the work, but I have come to finish the work. I am also a Messiah. So they try to link themselves to Jesus because it's very difficult to, to convince people that Jesus was somehow um, that he had no bearing on, at the very least, the political landscape of, of the people, of Israel. Right? Even Jews would, would acknowledge that. All right, so verse 5, Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So that is still happening today. Verse 6, here's another thing to look for as we approach the end of the world. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Um, this ties into verse 7 where he says, Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. If you take all of the wars that have been recorded from the year, from the time Jesus said this until 1900, right? Put that on one list. And then make another list of all the wars that have been recorded from 1900 until today. We have, there are more wars on the second list. In 120 years, there have been more wars than 1900 plus years. So we can see that as we approach the end, these signs are beginning to multiply. They are increasing in frequency and intensity. Back in verse 6, Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. When you read this verse in Luke's gospel, instead of saying rumors of wars, I believe it's Luke, might have been Mark, either way, it talks about commotions, commotions. It's an interesting word uh, to use for that. 
The word commotions, that same Greek word can be translated instability, disorder, confusion, tumult. Uh, commotions is a fine word to use. I think we all understand what that is. Right now with COVID going on and all these lockdown regulations, this is commotion. Now, some people have asked why, especially I put together a couple YouTube videos answering the questions about coronavirus and COVID and the uh, the vaccine and the micro dot that they want to give us and the mark of the beast and how it all ties together. And in those videos, I didn't express a great deal of panic. I made it clear that I'm not panicked about it. I'm, if anything, I'm excited by it. It is an indicator that we're heading into more commotion, more confusion, more tumult, disorder. I, I see that, but there's no need to panic. Number one, I'm fully aware of God's timeline, right? The next, the thing I'm looking for is the rapture. I'm not worried about the mark of the beast. I don't want to be ignorant of it, but that's not something I'm, I want to spend a long time uh, thinking about or worried about. I want to keep my eyes on Christ, not the Antichrist. But Jesus said, see that you be not troubled. So when I start hearing of rumors of wars and commotions, I'm, I don't want to be ignorant of it. And I don't want the, the people I'm responsible to, to lead in a spiritual way, I don't want them to be ignorant of it. I don't want to ignore it. But as I mentioned in one of those videos, guys, we have a Bible. We know that things are going to get confusing as far as the world's concerned. We know that. What do we do about it? Well, as we we're going to see by the end of the chapter, Jesus tells us, be ye therefore ready. As the world gets darker and darker, we should shine brighter and brighter with the light of the gospel. All right, so verse uh, 6 at the end of it, all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So just getting started. Verse 7, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. I've already mentioned something about that. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All right, now, as it pertains to famines, there are constantly famines going on all over the world. Each generation, right, and in, in, on each continent suffers from this. And it's, it's not always some divine judgment from God that's causing it. Different climates, right, climate change within an area, food management, overpopulation, wars, all of these things can affect a, uh, the, the food supply. What I believe Jesus is pointing at here, though, will link directly with what we find in Revelation chapter 6. So in Revelation 6, verses 1 to 4, you read about world peace being established and then a war taking it away. Well, that matches verse 6. That matches verse 7, kingdom against kingdom. And then Jesus talks about a worldwide, or forgive me, I guess you could say it is Jesus, but in Revelation 6, you read about uh, uh, the, the black horse coming out, and that's a worldwide famine. Jesus mentions famines. In Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8, you read about a pale horse with death and hell riding on it, and mil billions of people are going to die, and amongst the reasons that they die, war is one of them, right? Famine is part of it. The beast of the earth go crazy, but also it just says death there in Revelation 6, verse 8. And that death is going to be linked to the pestilences, which is a pandemic. Um, guys, I strongly doubt that COVID, that COVID by itself, that that disease plays into the end times. 
I think it's preparing the world for something big to come. But COVID by itself, I think you've probably seen by now the news reports. The CDC even came out and said that the numbers they have been reporting aren't very accurate. Matter of fact, 94%, that's how far off they were on their numbers. But this isn't a class to break down the CDC. But I'm just trying to say I don't think COVID fits into verse 7, not directly. It is probably preparing the world for something to come, though. So pestilences, world, there are going to be pandemics and diseases spreading all over the place. Uh, but this is what you would expect from a massive world war. You would expect famine and, and disease to then run rampant ev- everywhere that the war has touched. And earthquakes in diverse places. Now, the earthquakes could be brought on by war and bombs going off. But as soon as, the, as soon as nature starts to react in this way, you'd have to think that there's something from God behind this. Let me give you some numbers on earthquakes. Earthquakes measuring 7.0 or greater on the Richter scale. All right, here are the numbers. From 1863 to 1900, there were 12. 12. From 1901 to 1938, there were 53. 53 of these large earthquakes. From 1939 to 1976, there were 71 massive earthquakes. And then from 1977 to 2011, 164. So you can see as time has gone on, using the records that people have been keeping, the earthquakes are becoming more and more frequent. And I guess we could all, it's hard to say more intense, right? Because there's always been massive earthquakes, but there are certainly... Uh, the picking up in frequency. Jesus says in verse number eight, if you need any of these things to stay up longer, please let me know and I can put them, I can put them, uh, put that slide back up. Verse eight, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Well, that would match Revelation six, right? If you guys have been through Revelation class, I, I teach you in there that Revelation six verses one to eight, that is the beginning portion of the tribulation time. And then what happens in Revelation 6, verse 9, you begin to read about a worldwide persecution that will last from, that er- from those early days of the tribulation all the way to the end of it. I think you'll see it fitting in here in this chapter. Verse 9, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now again, you'll be hated of all nations. Now it is true that Everywhere the gospel went, they met with persecution, right? When they went into Greece and into Rome and into, you know, the gospel eventually made its way to Spain and various places. It was met with hatred everywhere, even in those early days. But if you take that phrase, all nations, then you you can't, if you take that in a global manner, then we can't have this happening just in 70 AD, right? You've got to look at this throughout the last 2,000 years. Um. And I, will, I would even say, take it right down into the end days, to the you know, tribulation time. Christianity is going to, and it's even started now, that Christianity is becoming the focal point of a lot of people's hatreds. Biblical Christianity, that is. I heard a story just the other day. Um, I hope I'm getting the details right, but there was a Christian missionary, if I'm not mistaken, that was arrested in the Sudan and put into a prison. And there were ISIS members in the prison with him. And 
the people in that country and in that prison said that that Christian missionary was more dangerous than the ISIS members. They considered him a, a more volatile target. I, that's, it's hard to imagine that people would view it that way. But even in, in America now, within the uh, military, you're not allowed to witness to your fellow soldier, if I, as I understand it correctly. They have cut that off. You cannot be an evangelical Christian. So I think as time goes on, we'll see more and more of that starting to happen. Uh, verse 10, And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Now, we have already looked at some verses about this. Um, back in Matthew chapter 10, we looked at a brother uh, going against a brother, delivering up his brother to death, a father against his son, and those type of things. And all of that was meant for this context. It, it's going, it can take place in our, in our day. It does, right? These things do happen. But as time goes on, it's going to get worse and worse. Um, I'm, I see here, I have a, a little note I want to share with you just quickly. Forgive me. Let your eyes travel back up to verse 8. All these are the beginning of sorrows. That word sorrows, it's the same word we would use for birth pangs. The Greek word behind that, birth pangs. So when a, a woman goes into labor, these are the sorrows that she feels. They're birth pangs. It's the, it's the same Greek word you find in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3 where Paul says about the second coming of Christ that uh, the world is going to travail, or I'm sorry, that the sorrows are going to come upon the world as travail upon a woman with child. That travail, same word for sorrows. So just like when a woman goes into labor, the contractions, the labor pains, they increase in frequency and intensity until the baby is born. So the world is going to go into these sorrows and it's going to get worse and worse until the new world comes into existence. All right, so verse 11. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Um, you might be familiar with it. I'm sure you are. Second Timothy 3 verse 13, Paul said that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. There's always been deceivers, right? In Paul's day, there were, there were plenty of them. And all through history, there have always been deceivers. I think it is, I think it's, we're living in a unique time, unlike these other ages, these other generations, because of technology. The visibility of false teaching and false teachers, the visibility, the accessibility, it's, it's just multiplied astronomically. It used to be you, you'd have to go listen to them in person, right? For, for most of history, that's how it was. But now you're a few, few clicks away from any dangerous doctrine. So when he says many false prophets are going to rise and deceive many, that's always been true to a, to a, large, to a certain extent, but to a large extent in these last days, especially the ones in which we're living. Uh, in verse number 12, it says, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. It's hard to imagine a world that has less of a moral compass than the one we currently have. But if I understand the Bible correctly, we are heading towards that. Things are not getting better. They're getting worse. 
spiritually, I mean, in every way, but especially spiritually, iniquity is going to abound, abound, not just increase, but abound. And because of that, it says the love of many shall wax cold. So people that have a proper love for God, for their family, for righteousness, for truth, the pressure of constant sin and wickedness around them, the pressure of persecution for holding those positions, for many, it's going to become too much. And it's going to, it's going to break their, their passion, right? If you think of trying to quantify love, and that's very hard to do, but if you try to quantify love by the passion that it invokes in you, as soon as you start talking about passion, you, you link that to, you can measure it by heat, right? So there's a fervency that goes with your love. And even in the Bible, we read about a fervent charity. So I think that's a good way to think about it. And even here, the love of many will wax cold. So that's, I think, the connection he's making. People are going to be persecuted by the world, hunted you know, unto death, sold out by their families, suffering for the name of Christ. And for some people, that's just, they're going to say, the fight's not worth it. I can't handle this. And the love is, they're not going to go, it's not just that they get lukewarm. They become cold. They completely give up and say, that's it. I quit. I'm not going to stand for this anymore for Christ. So verse 13, the admonition comes in, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now, this verse, powerful verse, I, I believe you must, I believe it's imperative that you understand the verse within its context. We are dealing with the time of the end. I believe that this is meant for people in the tribulation. After the body of Christ is gone, they have to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, just like anybody today, in order to be saved. But then they have to hang on to their faith. If they give it up, then there's nothing they can do to get saved again. I believe this will be consistent with what is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. It is consistent with what is mentioned in the book of Revelation. I believe if you look at each time this phrase, unto the end, shows up in the Bible, you do find Paul using it at least once I know of. It's in, I speak under correction, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where it says that the, the Spirit of God will confirm us unto the end. But in all the other places where it's ta it talks specifically about a person's salvation, those contexts are overwhelmingly end times, tribulation type contexts. And I believe that's what you're dealing with here. Now, I will say this. If you believe that a person can lose their salvation, right? and, I, and I, I've heard this, this idea put forth, and I've considered it. I have. I've looked into this. People, some people believe that you get saved and you are eternally secure, you're in the body of Christ as long as you hold to the faith. If there's no sin that you can commit that'll cut you out of the body, except the sin of unbelief. If you turn your back on Christ, then you're out. And if somebody believes that, right, then what they're doing is taking the book of Hebrews, Revelation, Matthew, and they're taking these verses and putting them into our dispensation now. Fair enough. Okay, I wouldn't agree with that approach, but if you're going to go that route, there needs to be consistency, right? So follow along with what Hebrews says. If you fall away, it is impossible to be renewed again into repentance. 
So if you lose the faith, that's it. You can't be saved again. So you got to be consistent. If you're going to teach it like that, then make sure you, you point out once you've lost it, no coming back. And then secondly, you'd have to answer this. What qualifies as unbelief? Do you have to make an official proclamation saying that you reject Christ? What if you have just a momentary lapse, just a moment of doubt? Is, is that unbelief? Do you, do you have to say it out loud? Or what if you're just thinking it inside? What's, how, how, where do we draw the line for that? So for me, and I don't want to spend a long time on this because we, we do spend quite a bit of time on this topic in the book of Hebrews. But I believe approaching the Bible with a dispensational outlook, rightly dividing the word of truth, leaving the verse in the context that it's in, I believe it makes it pretty clear to whom this applies. It applies to people that are living after the body of Christ has left the earth. And that's why they don't have the same eternal security that we have. All right, verse 14. He says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So when Jesus said in verse 13, He that shall endure unto the end. Now you can take that to mean the end of your life. But I don't think that's directly what Jesus was saying there. I believe the end that he's pointing to is the same end that they asked about in verse 3, the end of the world, the end of that age. In verse 14, then shall the end come. The end of what? The end of these troublous times of this, and I'm going to use the biblical term here, verse 29, the tribulation. Verse 21, great tribulation. Now, bear in mind, Jesus is just talking about troubles there, but this is where we get the title that we use for this seven-year period after the rapture. We call it the tribulation with a capital T. This is where we get it from. So Jesus is saying before that end comes, there's going to be a massive worldwide missions movement. I have heard plenty of preachers use verse 14 to say, if we witness enough, if we take the gospel all over the world, then we can trigger the rapture. Maybe you've heard that before. Because, and, and if you just took verse 14 by itself and you didn't try to understand it within any context, I can see why they would say that. We've got to get this gospel to all the nations and then we'll trigger the end. I, I, I don't. We have taken, the gospel has reached the uttermost parts of the earth. The problem is people are always being born. There's always somebody else to go and tell the good news to. So I, I don't think that works to say we can trigger the rapture. Again, dispensationally, and remember, we are not preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I'm way down here. Sorry, guys. i got to get used to moving with the verses here. There we go. Um, we're not preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We are preaching the gospel of the grace of God. Right? Acts chapter 20, verse 24. So there's a difference there. I believe verse 14 fits perfectly in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Revelation 7 and verse 9. Matter of fact, let me see if I can help you guys out a little bit with that. Revelation 7 and verse 9. Yeah, it says here, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations, of all nations, and kindreds, and people, and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. This, this group is standing there as a result of the ministry of the 144,000. 
and get that set for you again. So I believe what you're reading about in Matthew 24, the gospel of the kingdom, it is going to be preached in the tribulation. It would be proper to say there, repent, the kingdom's about to come. And the 144,000 commissioned and sent out by God to go all over the world and reach them. And Revelation 14, right before the end comes, the 144,000 are taken out. But by then, all nations have been reached with the gospel message. All right, so verse 15. Verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Uh, he's telling them more about the signs of his coming. And one of the things that has to happen before Jesus can come back is you have to see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place. Now, if you, if you take it as the preterist would to say the abomination of desolation is knocking the temple down, in the verse it says you have to see something standing in the holy place. Not knocking it down, but something standing there. I take this to be the image of the beast that you read about in Revelation chapter 13. The false prophet will make it, bring it to life, and that image will stand and begin to teach. If you link this with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, we read about the Antichrist going into the temple, showing himself that he's God and claiming to be God. So I believe what the, what the false prophet will do is say, let's commemorate this great day that our Savior rose from the dead, speaking of the Antichrist. And let's commemorate it by making an image and placing it in this holy place. And then when he does, he brings that image to life. That image will stand and begin to speak and to teach. Let me give you a verse or two on this. Get Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49. I, does it help if I do it like this? You guys let me know if this helps. Um, this way, at least, we're all on the same, same page here. Isaiah 44, verse 19, And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? Now Isaiah is rebuking the Israelites for their use of idols. And he's saying, guys, can't you see that you cut down a tree? Part of it you use to bake bread. Part of it... Uh, you used to build with, but it, and now you're worshiping the other part. Part of it is just the fire, the coals of the fire. It's, a, it's part of the bry, but now you're worshiping the other part of it. But he calls it an abomination, an abomination. Now, the abomination of desolation, or as you read in the book of Daniel, the abomination that makes desolate, it makes something empty. So the presence of God is run out because this idol is standing in that holy place. Now bear in mind, this verse that we're reading in Matthew 24, it also indicates that the temple has to be rebuilt. Right? The temple is not standing yet, so the temple needs to be rebuilt. Now at the time Jesus was giving it, the temple was still standing, but by saying you're gonna see the abomination stand in the holy place, the temple has to be knocked down, then rebuilt, then you see that abomination come up. Um, let me give you guys another interest. I find this interesting, this verse. 
Um, we're reaching the end of Habakkuk 2. I'm in verse 18 and 19. It says, What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Habakkuk 2.19 says, Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, and to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. Now, in Habakkuk's day, this is incredibly appropriate, right? It's an idol. It can't say anything. It has no breath. But one day, when the false prophet brings that image to life, it will awake, it will arise, and it will teach. And it'll tell the world you have to take the number, the mark, or the name of the beast. Now look at Habakkuk 2.20 here at the bottom. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So before the Lord steps into the holy temple, that temple that will be standing in the tribulation time, it will, it will be made desolate by the presence of this, of this idol in it. All right, I'm going to come back to Matthew. Come back to Matthew chapter 24. Guys, let me encourage you again. I, I hope it helps to put the verses on there, and I am trying to help you, but I really encourage you to use your Bibles as well, to move from place to place and see these things in the Scripture for yourself. All right, back in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, now he says, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, not the historian. That's an interesting Interesting mention there. Stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. In order to understand, you got to go back and read Daniel. Now, I, we don't have time to get into all of this, but I'm just going to give you the verses in Daniel. The abomination of desolation is mentioned in these four places specifically, and then it is described in other verses as well. Daniel 8.13, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11, verse 31, and 12, verse 11. You can read about the abomination of desolation. And I wish we had more time to dig into all of those passages, but, but we don't. I believe what Jesus is getting at, when you read the book of Daniel, if you take the, the information that Jesus is giving you and plug it into what Daniel's already given you, you're going to understand better what to expect in the end. And this is why for a long time, for centuries, people have said the best commentary there is on the book of Revelation is the book of Daniel and, and vice versa. It works both ways. Those two books help abundantly. All right, verse 16. Then it says, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Uh, forgive me, I'm just going to Keep reading here. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. Why? Urgency. You can't run as fast with a newborn babe. You don't have time to get your bags packed. You don't have time to grab any clothes. You just, just run. Run for the mountains. Where does this fit? Right in the middle of the tribulation time, Revelation chapter 12, Satan has fallen from heaven. He knows that he has but a short time, and he is going, the great red dragon is going to attack the woman. And the woman, Revelation 12, verse 6, flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God. That's the exact 
event that you're reading about here in Matthew 24. Verse 15 happens right in the middle of the tribulation time of those seven years. And then the Jews have to just run for their lives because the Antichrist is going to try to wipe them out. The woman that you read about in Revelation 12 is the nation of Israel. Uh, I'm going to give you one more verse here, and this is your attendance code for the evening. Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 20. I would, I would encourage you to look at it. Um, but again, just for the sake of those that maybe need it. Isaiah 26 and verse 20. I would really encourage you to look at this chapter uh, later on. Look at the whole chapter because it all speaks to this. But he says, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For, behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. There's so much in that to unpack. You might be able to see it in chapter 26 and verse 19 there in Isaiah. You read about a resurrection that is promised to Israel, a physical resurrection. But before that happens, Israel has to hide for a little while until the Lord shows up and and brings vengeance for all the evil done to them. All right, let's come back to Matthew 24 now. And verse number, we got just a couple minutes. Verse number 20, Matthew 24 and verse 20. He says, but pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now, this is, a. I think there's a lot of practicality in this. Um, it, in Israel, on the Sabbath day, everything closes. It makes traveling a lot more difficult. So when he says, pray that your flight be not in the winter, I don't think Jesus is predicting planes, right? I don't, I don't think we can take it that far, that he's prophesying about airplanes. Flight as in fleeing, what he said in verse number 16. So pray that you don't have to run um, in the middle of winter. It's just harder to move in the middle of winter. It is. Not only for, you know your bones, your body, it doesn't work as well, but also there's snow on the ground sometimes, ice, whatever the, the weather conditions would hinder you. And then also the Sabbath day, everything closes down. Borders close. There's rules against moving a certain distance. So it just makes traveling more difficult. I find this interesting, however. Pray that your flight be not in the winter. Evidently then, we are going to see that there are certain things that God is determined to do. There are certain aspects of the tribulation that God has predetermined, and they will happen. This is God. This is on God's part. He's not overriding anybody's free will, but he has put limits on things that once this event happens, then there's only going to be so much time from this event to this event. See, now God can make that decision. Once the Antichrist starts the clock by bringing the abomination of desolation into the temple, once the clock gets started, then there's only going to be a short space, short amount of time. And we'll see as the passage goes on, that's, God's determined that. But precisely when the Antichrist triggers that event, I, I don't think we can say God has determined it. Otherwise, why would Jesus say, pray that your flight's not in the winter on the Sabbath? It looks like that part of it is still undecided to a certain extent. It will happen, right? The event will happen, but the precise timing 
um, it looks as if that's not decided. I, if, you, if you guys got other comments or ideas about that, I, I, I'm interested to hear it. Verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Wow. If you have read history books, then that statement, it has to blow your mind. If you have specifically read up about the history of war, that statement, it'll take your breath away. Because the atrocities that have taken place in this world through wars and genocides and persecutions and 200 years of crusades, right? Oh, and to read about the things that happened, it's heart-wrenching, heartbreaking. And then Jesus makes this comment that, it, you haven't seen anything yet. It's going to get so bad. This is as bad as it will ever be. Wow, wow, wow. Now again, we, you'll find that some Bible teachers, they take, they take the seven years of tribulation and they break it into two parts. And they say the first three and a half years are tribulation. The second three and a half years are the great tribulation. Now guys, this is just semantics. That's fine if they want to use that terminology. No problem. I don't think that Jesus is trying to indicate that, this, that the second three and a half years should be called Great Tribulation. He's just saying that and he is, the time frame he's referring to is the second half of Daniel's 70th week. But it's not as if he's trying to give it a proper title. He's just saying that there's going to be big trouble. That's all he's trying to get across there. All right, verse number 22. Do we want to get into that? Yeah, let's do verse 22 and we'll finish up. Yeah, no, no, we've reached our time. I don't want to rush through that. We're going to talk about the elect. We're going to talk about the days being shortened. So let's let's wait on that and not rush it. Uh, Lord willing, next Sunday evening, we'll finish Matthew 24. Matthew 25 shouldn't take as long. And from there, we don't have as much of the prophetic type material. Um, there's lots of great stuff and the chapters are quite long, but we'll be able to move at a, at a slightly faster pace. So I think we should be fine. We'll be able to finish um, in the time we have allotted. Okay, I hope this has helped tonight. If you guys have any questions, this is your opportunity to um, put them into the comments section. I'm going to pray, and if there's no questions, then we'll close. Father, thank you this evening for your help. Um, Lord, there's, oh, there's just so much in this chapter. Please help us, Lord, to watch over our hearts. You, you've told us that iniquity would abound and that love would wax cold. God, please don't let that happen to us. Help us not to be part of that problem. Lord, uh, help us to stand strong. You said that these things would just be the beginning of sorrows, all of those things we read about earlier. Help us, Lord, not to fall for the deceptions all around us, for the iniquity all around us. Help us to be ready when you come back, that we meet you unashamed. Lord, we do pray that it be soon. Please let the trumpet sound soon. Until then, thank you for the privilege of serving you, knowing you, fellowshipping with you and with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.